The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks, and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you're tired of the know-it-all guy at your Civil War roundtable, or if you are that know-it-all guy, you'll want to hear tonight's show. Our guest, Chuck Veet, is not only president of the Navy and Marine Living History Association, he's also the author of A Dog Before a Soldier, Almost Lost Episodes in the U.S. Navy's Civil War, The Battle of Shiloh in February 1862, at the time the U.S. Navy captured a herd of beef cattle, the engagement fought with the Japanese Navy in 1863, Stand by to hear these and other stories you haven't heard before tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. We are part of the University of North Carolina system, not its flagship, but not one of the tiny barges being towed along behind either. We're number three right there behind Chapel Hill and State in prestige, size, other things. Not, however, uh, football, we hope. We, We beat them both last year. But Although part of the UNC system, I'm not speaking for it or for anyone in it, uh, just for myself, as I know my guest will also do here on Civil War Talk Radio, as always. Well, last week we started out the 11th season of the program. It has been a 
very fast 11 years since we first began producing this and talking with you about Civil War topics. Uh, the new year started with lots of positive energy here on campus. Uh, then this morning I had a meeting with the dean and the college has a budget cut for the year of 3%. Uh, which I suppose may sound small, but it's the fifth year in a row of budget cuts. We've got thousands more students than ever, millions fewer dollars. And since our budget is all payroll, 3% cut means people not teaching anymore. Uh, and that in turn means fewer research hours for those of us who are left behind. Uh, not a problem here in the Civil War world. There will always be people like me, I imagine, who will want to do a show like Civil War Talk Radio on our own time, just as you will want to listen to it on yours, because we have a fascinating topic. But what about those less popular areas of history or other fields like mathematics or philosophy uh, that might not have an audience to sustain them? Uh, they're still important to an educated society. It uh, frightens me how quickly we are moving away from public support of higher education and uh, moving into a, a very, uh, well, dismal maybe, no, no, a dismal new world if, if, if we are not willing to pay to maintain institutions like East Carolina. Well, enough bad news. Um, no football talk this week. We're not talking bad news anymore. Pirates could have won the game they played last week, should have won, but we'll move forward and look into the future instead where Civil War Talk Radio has lots of Good things lined up. Next week, Jason Rowe will be presenting Civil War, talking with us about Civil War on the Western Border. He is part of a team that put together an award-winning website, the Kansas City Public Library. It was recognized by the Society of Civil War Historians. The following week, on the 24th, John Barr has a book called Loathing Lincoln, an American Tradition from the Civil War to the Present. This weekend, I should say the, uh, what will it be, the 13th, today's the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th and uh, 14th in Galesburg, Illinois. It will be time for the annual Lincoln Studies Center Conference. I will be there on Friday attending Matthew Pinsker's public lecture. If you're anywhere in the western Illinois, eastern Iowa area, come by Knox College and hear Matt Pinsker talk about Abraham Lincoln, and I'm sure we'll... Uh, I'm sure I'll be asking my colleagues or what they think of Barr's, John Barr's new book. Moving ahead, on October 1, Rick Sowers writes about the Fishing Creek Confederacy, a story of Civil War draft resistance. Then on October 8, Keith Hardison, director of North Carolina Historic Sites, former director of the uh, Jefferson Davis House. And on October 15th, Brigadier General retired Jack Mountcastle, who was at one time director of uh, military history for the United States Army and now uh, retired, conducts battlefield tours of Civil War sites. On October 22nd, Jamie Malinowski from the uh, New York Times uh, Civil War blog will be discussing his new book, Commander Will Cushing, Daredevil Hero of the Civil War. On October 29th, a guest I've long been trying to arrange to have on the show, uh, William Still. Bill Still is the founder of the Maritime Studies program here at 
East Carolina University and the author of uh, Iron Afloat, uh, History of Confederate Ironclads, and has uh, a long career in nautical archaeology, much of it focused on the Civil War. So he'll be with us at the end of October. And then uh, November 5th, uh, uh, Caroline Janey returns to the show. She has a new book on uh, Civil War memory, always a hot topic, and we'll be glad to have her back. So lots coming up in the next two months. Please join us for those. And feel free, uh, as always, when looking for information to go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date and where he presents the PayPal donation button. Every week I remind you it's not tax deductible. It's just for me. It's not a charity. And I make some smart aleck remark. Uh, I think I kidded about car repairs last week while I was just asking for trouble. And sure enough, uh, the old station wagon is about to drop one fender and the transmission. So it's time for a midlife crisis car for me. Uh, so your donations could go to Civil War Books to discuss on the show, or perhaps some bright red convertible of some sort, some ridiculous car. I'm not a car person, I don't really want that, but you know, midlife crisis seems like the right thing to get. Anyway, that's CivilWarTR at AOL.com. That's the uh, PayPal address if you want to send a donation this way. Always welcome. But tonight we leave behind the budget cuts and other traumas of the 21st century and return to the 19th to look at the role of the United States Navy in the Civil War, uh, a topic that has long been both studied and presented by our guest, Chuck Veet. He is the president of the Navy and Living uh, Navy and Marine Living History Association, as well as the author of the book mentioned in the introduction, A Dog Before a Soldier. Ask him about that title. Uh, we met last year at a Living History event in Plymouth, North Carolina, and I'm happy to uh, that he's agreed to be on the show. Chuck, are you there? Yes, hi. Thank you. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, let me make sure. Am I pronouncing your last name correct? Is it Viet or Veit? Fair, fairly close. Long E, Viet. Viet. Okay. I, I had to write for V-E-I-T for listeners who want to look mm-hmm. up the books. Very good. Well, yes, we, you and I met, uh, I think it was Plymouth, North Carolina last year. Right, right. You were doing your, your presentations uh, in the, the persona of a U.S. Uh, naval officer, I, I, if I recall correctly. Correct, correct. And that struck me, you know, that immediately caught my attention. Uh, we've had, I've actually had two people from that, that event on the show. One was, uh, uh, from Battery B of the 2nd U.S. Colored Light Artillery, mm-hmm. and I had never seen uh, uh, an African-American artillery recreated unit before, and I don't think I'd ever seen the Navy presented uh, as you did it before. So how did you get into naval living history? Actually, it was a little bit of an accident. Uh, you can blame it on our, our, our kids coming of age. About 1997, we were looking around for something new and different to do as a family, and went to a reenactment uh, in Massachusetts, where we live, and decided this was something that all of us could, could get into. The trouble is, to be part of one of the infantry groups, you have to devote a lot of time to drill that you don't see you know, during events and all that. Uh, it also depends on numbers a lot. Three guys do not a regiment make. 
So we decided we didn't want to devote that kind of time to it because of work and family requirements. So we hit the books and thought, well, what, what else was going on in the Civil War that we could portray accurately? And it turns out that, you know, the Navy routinely was dropping an officer with an aide or an escort ashore, uh, and that took care of my son and myself. And my wife would come along to talk about child raising in the Civil War. And my daughter, who was about nine, could be bought off with a new dress every year and just wanted to look pretty. So that's how we get into Navy reenacting. Wow. So, uh, you know, they say there's no such thing as fun for the whole family, but it uh, sounds like you may have actually proved that wrong. Actually, uh, actually, it was. It was. Well, so Navy reenacting, uh, again, the first thing people think is, well, you know, you're on shore. It's not a ship. Uh, but you, you say there were a lot of naval officers regularly detailed on shore. Well, whenever I started this by myself, it was never really intended to be anything but a family event, if you will. And uh, there's loads of documentation. Any, I, I, I chose lieutenant rank simply because that would give me a reason to be ashore to confer with whatever local army groups were in the area. And my son was just an enlisted man who could come ashore. That, that's very, very routine. Since then, in the past 17 or so years, it's grown to the point where we portray an actual landing party. And what's very, very nice about Navy living history is our portrayal doesn't depend on numbers. I can go to the official records or letters or diaries or newspapers and cite anywhere from three men ashore to waylay a Confederate postman to 20 men ashore in reconnaissance to 40 men to raid a plantation to 100 men to take out a fort. Uh, as a lieutenant, I can command up to 40 men if need be. We now have a, a small mountain howitzer, and we basically are portraying what the Navy routinely did. And they made these raids uh, and recons as much as 20 miles inland from navigable rivers. So the reach of the Navy is quite extensive in the Civil War. So that does get over one of the, the issues of reenactment. As you say, three men do not a regiment make. And Correct. It is very, you know, the public doesn't worry about it so much. But looking at, at reenactments and seeing uh, 50 or even 500 people out there where the real battle had 50,000, you can't help but realize this is just a scaled-down simulation. The Navy's onshore events, on the other hand, you're, you're, you're showing the whole thing. Basically, yes. I mean, there were, again and again, the Navy wanted to know what exactly was, you know, working and what was not working in the war against the South. So literally a lieutenant with two enlisted men would go ashore, you know, in the early morning hours, wait in the bushes by the road and waylay a Confederate postman. They might get a juicy letter from an officer writing home, you know, uh, they might just get a couple newspapers that would say, oh, the price of this is up, isn't that terrible, or, you know, so-and-so is hurting, or this part is sick, or we're starving, things like that. That's all pertinent information in the middle of a war. And so if I show up with just two enlisted men, that's historically accurate. If 12 guys show up and the guy with the, the mountain howitzer brings it, we've got a landing party. That's no problem. That's historically accurate. Our biggest challenge is how much food do we bring? <laughs> because the number of guys doesn't matter. No. What about uh, gear? Where, where do you get stuff for, for Navy impressions? That can take most of your lifetime, uh, simply because uh, for years, of course, a lot of the sutlers or vendors have, have uh, catered, of course, to their most lucrative market, which is Army reenacting. And you can literally go to one particular sutler if you want, choose anyone, and get everything you need right down to the core badges, uh, the correct hat, the correct brogans, everything. With the Navy, it's a little more hunt and peck. Uh, some of the things you have to make yourself, 
you might spend a lot of time trying to find, you know, this correct item or that correct item. Uh, and some things just don't exist. Some of the specialty weapons we would like to have, they simply don't make them, even in India, because there's not a big enough market. So uh, you you have to improvise or, or just work around. Without you explain to your audience, again, our focus is not so much the battles as talking to people in the hours before and after the battles almost represent a break for us. So, for instance, we don't have... Uh, you know, uh, any of the specialty Navy rifles, the large caliber ones that they preferred uh, with the special tinning on the barrel to present seawater from rusting it. We don't have those. But you portray or you present the weapons the Navy did have and that we can have and explain, okay, this is missing because, that sort of thing. And you have to work around it up to a point, and that's just the limitations of, you know, pocketbook and availability. But with that limitation, you try to present as large a, a portrayal of Navy life at the time as possible. And do you find people uh, you find people are interested in this? I gather. I would say that we found two things: the American public is dismally ignorant, and I use that in its real sense—not stupid, but ignorant. They've never been taught this stuff, and incredibly interested because it is something new and different. I think the record so far, and I forget who holds it, is having a bunch of adults stand for two and a half hours in a drizzle just asking for more stories. This is stuff that they don't get taught in school, and the stories are absolutely incredible, and they've never heard them before. So, yes, people are very much interested. Well, you have a number of, of fascinating stories in the book that I'm looking at here. Uh, a Dog Before a Soldier, Almost Lost Episodes in the U.S. Navy's Civil War. Uh, we're coming up already in time for our first break, so instead of interrupting a story, we'll go. We'll take our break a little bit early and come back, and I want to ask you about some of these things in the the intro i tease the audience with the idea of the battle of shiloh not the one we all know but the one fought in february 1862 Uh, when we come back in a minute uh you can tell us about that and other almost lost episodes our guest today is chuck viet he is author of a dog before a soldier and also president of the navy and marine living history association i'm jerry prokopovich and this is civil war talk radio Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Chuck Viet. He is the author of A Dog Before a Soldier, Almost Lost Episodes in the U.S. Navy's Civil War. Uh, it's a fascinating collection of little-known stories of uh, the Navy in the war, one of which I didn't know about uh, when I started reading the book. The Battle of Shiloh, everybody's familiar with what happened there in April 1862. But, Chuck, what happened there in February 1862? Well, that was the first Battle of Pittsburgh Landing. <laughs> which I didn't know about uh, until I went to Shiloh in about 2002. The Rangers had invited me out there because they, they knew it was a Navy battle as well as an Army battle. And in flying out, I, I had with me a, a sheaf of papers, you know, just data to brush up on, things like that. And they had kindly sent me what obviously were scans of pages from the official records. And I imprudently ignored them for a while, thinking, oh, I know what the battle, I know what happened there, don't worry. And mm-hmm. at the last moment, I thought, well, let's just check one more time, because someone will want to know you know, the exact length of a ship, the Tyler election, things like that. And I was surprised by the date, which was February 28th and March 1st. And so I read through this, and it turns out that through archaeological excavations, which turned up Navy shells, which typically have an anchor or three fuses on them as opposed to the Army one, they found those in what were Union lines uh, in the later battle on the 6th and 7th of April. And in digging through the records, they discovered that the Tyler and Lexington, the two small gunboats under Lieutenant Gwynn and Shirk, fought a skirmish there against the 18th Louisiana under Alfred Mouton on March 1st. And this basically identified for both sides the importance of Pittsburgh Landing that would lead to the Battle of Shiloh a month later. So, in effect, because of this small skirmish, it brought on the Battle of Shiloh, Second Battle of Shiloh. So, there, the, the Confederate regiment was on shore at what would later be close to Grant's headquarters on the second day. Exactly, where basically the visitor center is in the National Cemetery. They had been sent there and arrived just the day before in freezing cold weather and told to watch for Yankee gunboats was all. The ground is so frozen, they've barely scratched uh, entrenchments. I think they're about 18 inches deep. Nobody can even hide in them on top of what was Shiloh Hill, which, of course, has been leveled now to make the cemetery. That was the single best spot on the entire river to drop plunging fire from on top of a ship and sink it. And they didn't realize it at the time, nor did the Navy. And they had barely set up the next morning when the two gunboats showed up, planning to go right past Shiloh down to Iuka, Mississippi, and drop a railroad bridge into the water. And the rebel gunners, who were as green as the Yankees are at this point, fired a little prematurely, and the shell dropped 200 yards ahead of the lead ship, which, of course, got the Navy's attention. The battle lasted about several hours. There were some casualties on either side. But again, it identified that spot as, oh, why are the other guys interested in this? And so the Navy made sure the rebels didn't entrench, and the Confederates realized this is where they're coming. And as, as you pointed out earlier, the Navy often puts soldiers, put sailors ashore, and they do that here. They send some, uh, uh, some armed men ashore to try to drive the Confederates away, and then they discover they're quite outnumbered. 
Right. They had uh, 50 men on board from a, an Indiana regiment. Uh, again, they, they didn't realize how heavily fortified the bridge on Iuka was. It would have been totally inadequate with those two ships. But they decided, well, we only saw one company on top of Shiloh Hill, so let's make it fair. We'll drop 100 soldiers and sailors together. And the soldiers were going to provide covering fire, as were most of the sailors. And a Navy demolition team would blow up what they thought was the fort on top of the hill. Uh, it was just a, a, a farmer's house, and they found the entrenchments were pretty shallow, and the larger 32-pounder guns that the Rebs had brought with them hadn't even been mounted yet or anything. But in cresting the hill, they realized it's not just 100 men. There's a 1,000 of them down over the edge of the hill, <laughs> at which point it becomes a real battle. And the Navy uh, prudently runs back to their ships, loses a few men, and when the Confederates crest the hill, of course, the Navy gunners can see them, which is when they take their casualties. So it's not big in terms of... of casualties as far as the Civil War goes, but as far as import, it was rather critical. I mean, just a fascinating story, and as you say, it's one that is not widely told. I'm sure most of our listeners have read uh, at least one book on Shiloh, uh, possibly many more, but I can't recall reading about this particular incident in the past, and uh, fascinating to see it there. Something that struck me about it is... uh, I know some listeners engage in the hobby of recreating battles on a tabletop using uh, miniature soldiers, and when you do that, you have the same issue that you have with reenactments. You never have enough. You know, you don't actually put fifty thousand soldiers on a table. You'd need a very, very large football mm-hmm. field-sized table. So they scale it down. Put one soldier for every fifty real ones. But the the incidents you describe in this book, you could actually recreate uh, man for man. They're 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 on a human scale. These, these 50 guys going ashore and discovering, oh, there's a thousand of them there. We better get back. Pretty uh, much. And that's, that's the scale I tried to follow in all the episodes in the book. Uh, it's, it's not made up of the big named battles. There's no Mobile Bay. There's no Battle Heads of Passes or anything like that. It's all small unit actions that illustrate the roles the Navy played during the war. Uh, it, it really uh, you know, brings out the diversity of the, the roles that they played. One battle that I thought was particularly interesting, uh, and I'm paging through to make sure I got the, the title right, the, A Handsome Affair, the Navy at Fort Butler. This was in late June 1863, uh, part of the Vicksburg campaign, and as I was reading your account of this Union fort uh, along the Mississippi that uh, is, is there to keep... Uh, you know, to secure the, uh, you know, well, a base along the Mississippi, the the uh, Confederates attack, and the Union forces outnumbered, but they're supported by gunboats, and they're able to drive off uh, the rebels. What really grabbed me about it was how similar it was to the battle at Milliken's Bend. I don't know if you're familiar offhand with that. Uh, I wasn't too much uh, until a, f- uh, a few months ago we had Linda... Barnacle on the show. She's written a book on the Battle of Milliken's Bend, and it too, in, in uh, uh, June or July of 1863, involved a Union force attacked by night uh, and supported by gunboats. At first, I thought it was the same battle, but but I gather these are two different engagements. Yeah, they're two different ones, and I I, I chose that one because there's so many other fascinating aspects to that particular battle. Salient among which, of course, is the, the Navy spy, John Stevenson. And secondly, they've wrangled down there and researched for 150 years whether there were African-Americans uh, present at the battle in the Union Army. And it turns out there were. Someone just had to read a Navy logbook, and there was the answer. But that 
type of engagement repeats itself again and again and again. I could have written four books the size of A Dog Before a Soldier with nothing except episodes just like that one. Uh, small Union Garrison, outnumbered, attacked by Confederate forces in overwhelming numbers, about to be wiped out, Navy gunboat appears and rolls the rebels back. And then when the reports get put in, the Army commander conveniently forgets to mention the gunboats Mm-hmm. in the history book, so nobody knows the Navy was even there. But that happened hundreds of times in the Civil War. Well, that, that was, again, the, the pattern very similar in Millikan's Bend, both the gunboats, the presence of African-American soldiers, the outnumbered Union, uh, the, the Navy driving the Confederates back. The Confederates unwilling to believe that there were that few soldiers in the fort in both cases. Right. Um, one of really the underlying theme of your book is that the navy plays a bigger role than is often acknowledged is that a result of all these small engagements as opposed to the big famous ones i think it's a result of those smaller ones definitely on a tactical scale i mean obviously the battle of fort butler at donaldsonville is not going to prevent vicksburg falling as the confederates hoped it would they were making raids all along that area of southwestern louisiana up and down the, the river hoping to draw troops away, but Grant didn't bite. So strategically, it, it didn't make that much of a difference. But to the men from the regiments from New Hampshire and Maine, it was critical because they survived the battle. So again, those are happening by the hundreds throughout the four years of the war. The Navy also was making hundreds, again, of pinpick raids against plantations, which, of course, sounds to our ears like, like foul play. You're, you're targeting the home front. Well, plantations in the South served as concentrations of supplies from the local farms and the confederate commissary would send wagons and bring the supplies to the army so they become a target and by raiding those they're basically starving confederate armies and the population which is economic war into surrendering uh the navy also of course is chasing confederate well we'll say privateers to be polite but the newspapers at the time of course (laughs) always say pirate they're chasing them worldwide Uh, a larger role the navy plays that I haven't even addressed yet, just became aware of in the past couple of years, is the technological advances the Navy makes that basically keeps England at arm's length and, and prevents World War I probably by you know, 40 or 50 years. So the Navy is fighting on all different levels. That's the most fascinating thing to me. The armies are fighting sort of on this two-dimensional plane, and they're focused inward. Uh, you know, obviously McClellan and, and Meade and, and Grant don't really have too much time to worry about what's going on in the rest of the world. The Navy does. The Navy is America's shield so we can fight this fratricidal war and finish it and then turn back to face the world. That's entirely the Navy's responsibility and, and accomplishment. Uh, let me follow up on your, your comment about technological developments that help keep England uh, at arm's length. Uh, what specifically stands out for you? Well, at the beginning of the war, England especially, uh, although France actually came closer to fighting us uh, along the Mexican border, but England was our traditional enemy. Remember, we had fought two wars with them within living memory. They're our rivals in commerce. They loved nothing better at that time than giving us, Brother Jonathan, they called us, a poke in the nose about anything that we did. And it, it rankled all Americans. It rankled the Navy especially because when the war begins, when they would ask for rights to a port, to coal, to, to have liberty, you know, to revictual their ship. Typically, they were given uh, 
an unwelcome response. Well, you can stay 24 hours. There's no coal available, things like that. But lo and behold, next to them, a Confederate privateer could pull in or a blockade runner and enjoy the liberty of the station, all the coal they wanted cheap, things like that. And by 1862, there's a song that was very popular in the fleet, and I'll, I'll paraphrase rather than sing it for you, which I'm sure your readers, your listeners will appreciate. It's called Give Us a Navy of Iron So We Can Go After the British Lion. The U.S. Navy is hot to shoot anything flying a Union Jack. It's almost a shooting war. Well, as the war progresses, of course, we are improving not only our technology. I mean, Monitor is, is high-tech in 1862. Within a year, she's old news. You've got true ocean-going monitors and ironclads. You've got multiple turrets. And what's more, you're getting combat-trained veteran crews who know what they're up to. Also, because we're in this war and spurred by that, we're pushing technology. The English can't afford to. They've got a number of ironclads, and they make some new channel ironclads for the home fleet, which by their own admission, if they ever leave the channel, they'll turn over and sink. They're still paying for the Crimean War. They're still paying for the Napoleonic Wars. Unless they have an out-and-out shooting war in their hands, they can't tax their population to build a fleet on a par with ours. By about 1864, simply because our Navy has much more of a presence, the English get very respectful all of a sudden. And, oh, you can come into port as often as you want. Well, we're going to shut down that blockade running stuff, you know, and the privateers can't recall here anymore. And there's an entire change of attitude on the part of the English towards the part of the North. Now, ironclads, uh, you know, obviously the, the latest in technology were a huge threat. You describe how uh, Secretary of War Stanton was, was in a panic. Every Many people have read the account of uh, Lincoln and his cabinet when they first hear of the Merrimack, Virginia, sinking uh, the ships at Hampton Roads. They worry that it's going to come steaming up the Potomac. And uh, you describe another of your almost lost episodes is how, since Stanton didn't think the Navy was doing the job, he got together civilian ships that would serve as rams that were supposed to just go on suicide missions and sink the Virginia by sailing right into it uh, while manned by civilian crews who would volunteer for this suicide mission. Mm -hmm. That was a fascinating story. Uh, First, where did you find it? Actually, I looked in the official records. I mean, nobody researches in the official records of the Navy. Uh, There are so many fascinating stories. We we joke among ourselves in our our living history group that if you take any one volume of the official records and close your eyes and flip the pages and put your finger down at random, we can almost guarantee you you're within five pages in either direction of an unknown, fascinating episode that's been lost for 150 years. So I I found that one, and then the the information about the employment of the first all-African-American crew came from a privately published uh, family memoir from one of the principal people in their major canon. And again, I ran across that in a bookstore up here in New England, and the title interested me, and I picked it up, and my God, he must have only had eight or nine of these done. And I, I found that information that's never made a history book anywhere. So yeah, the whole episode was, was interesting because Stanton was so panicked the idea of Virginia basically sinking the Army of the Potomac, if you will, that when he was told that Monitor was firing, you know, one or two guns at a time, he just can't believe it's going to stand up to the monster Merrimack, which is the the adjective they mostly use to describe it, Mm -hmm. and went off on his own and got together this small squadron of ram ships. And although the Navy didn't want to fight that, they were forced to by Lincoln, because floats, the Navy does it. It's not actually that crazy an idea, given her low freeboard, the distance from the surface to the top of her, her main decks, uh, independent of the, the, the castle, if you will, that formed the superstructure, it 
you could ram her from multiple sides at once, bearing in mind that she can't fire in all four directions simultaneously, it really wasn't that bad a plan. You would lose several of your ships and a number of crewmen, but it would serve to force her gun ports underwater and scuttle her in effect. The, I mean, the plan makes sense from a technical or tactical naval point of view, but these ships are chartered civilian ships, and mm-hmm. they, they sail down to Hampton Roads uh, under the assumption they've signed a contract to deliver supplies to the Army. And then they're told, oh, by the way, you're going to go sail against the monster Merrimack and probably lose your lives. <laughs> yeah. It's in the contract. Read the fine print. And they all say no. They, they, they all walk off the job uh, until you get uh, – and then uh, they find a group of, of – African-American stevedores and crewmen and ask them to volunteer, and they all say yes. Uh, what a story. It, it's a fascinating story. I mean, there's one I'd love to see portrayed in a movie somewhere, portrayed well. Uh, again, whenever, whenever the Navy is forced to take the plant over, of course, we would, the Navy wants nothing to do with it. This is low-tech. You know, you, you tried some rams, if you will, or they're about to try some rams out in the Mississippi, but this is, this is so, you know, 15th century, it's ridiculous, but they have to do it. And when the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, uh, Gustavus Fox, is sent to New York to talk to the ship owners, he doesn't actually come out and say, by the way, make sure your crews know what they're getting into. And so the ship owners believe, okay, I can only tell the captain, and he's supposed to keep his mouth shut. And they do. And when the crews get down there, uh, Flag Officer Louis Goldsboro gets up there and, you know, congratulates them on their bravery and all that and reminds them what they're there to do, at which point they basically all say, say what? No way. Well, they're <laughs> civilians, so it doesn't quite count as a mutiny. But let's just say everyone takes one step back instead of forward, as far as volunteering goes, and he calls them every name in the, the Victorian dictionary and goes to get second crews. Well, Fox goes back to the owners again and says, well, we can get more crews. Still doesn't say, tell them what they're in for. And so the second crew uh, is ready to ship out, and the night before they get on board these ships, they meet the first crew in a bar, and the Navy <laughs> loses its second batch of men, <laughs> at which point they realize, okay, we need, we need enlisted sailors. Where can we get them? Well, the fleet is stretched pretty thin at this time, and thinking that, okay, this was originally an Army idea, the captain of the, the most uh, least crewed ship, if you will, the Arago, goes to Fortress Monroe and approaches General Wool for men for the crew. He wants soldiers. And Wool says, man, I need 10,000 soldiers. You don't even get a 50 for me. But you can go, if you want, and recruit among the stevedores. Now, this is a new and radical idea. The Army has just started to use blacks as paid laborers. All the African-American slaves who've escaped to the, what they call the Freedom Fort are just being employed. And there are interesting articles, uh, first reactions from Northerners. Okay, well, this, you know, they're, they're surprised. It's not surprising from our point of view, but they're like, okay, this is really going to work. You know, these guys are, are regular people, and, and they work well, stuff like that. And whenever he goes to recruit among them, he basically says to them, he lays it on the line. He says, look, some of you are going to die, uh, some of you will be wounded, maybe for the rest of your lives. But no race has ever freed itself by just cowering. And if you will come and crew this ship, we will strike a blow for your freedom. And he only needed 50 men, but all 350 stepped forward instead of backwards and volunteered. So he chose the 50 biggest because, again, they're enlisted sailors. Their job on the steamship is going to be mostly slinging coal and feeding the fires and things like that. The officers will actually con the ship. And once the Virginia has scuttled herself, possibly due in part to the fact that she's aware of this plan. Of course, everyone swaps newspapers. Uh, those 50 sailors stay in the Navy and are salted on among different ships. And from what I understand, a certain subset of them formed an all-black gun crew on board the Kearsarge, which she sinks the Alabama two years later. So, yeah, it's wow. a fascinating episode. 
It, it really is. <clears throat> well, the book is filled with them. The title is A Dog Before a Soldier, Almost Lost Episodes in the U.S. Navy Civil War. The author is Chuck Viet. We'll talk more with him in just a minute. We're going to take a break. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be back with more of Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking this evening with Chuck Viet, author of A Dog Before a Soldier, Almost Lost Episodes in the U.S. Navy's Civil War. Uh, Chuck, I have to ask you about the title. Why? What, what does that mean, A Dog Before a Soldier? <laughs> it was a, a small ditty that they, they taught officers uh, both on both sides of the Atlantic that expressed how they viewed the, the hierarchy of the world. And it, it talked about the order in which you would help somebody. You would help a, a messmate before a shipmate a shipmate before a stranger, a stranger before a dog, but you'd help a dog before a soldier. So, so soldiers at the bottom. The soldiers at the bottom. The reason I chose that title was not to disparage the U.S. Army or anything, and, and bear in mind, my one Civil War ancestor was a Pennsylvania cavalryman who served all four years and uh, was mustered out in the last month wounded. But mostly because when you read enough Navy history and compare it to the Army history, you realize that that's, Civil War story is stacked against the Navy for a variety of reasons. One, it's a numbers game. Uh, there, there are 26 or 27 soldiers for every single sailor or Marine, north and south. The secondly, the Navy, of course, doesn't have the benefit of the telegraph. So win, lose, or draw, the Army puts their story into Washington first. It hits the papers. It gets out there. That becomes the official record. The Navy guys, of course, are writing it out by pencil, putting it on a dispatch boat, getting it to the fleet, getting it to 
Washington finally in the papers three days later. So the story then sounds like, oh, me too, me too, and it doesn't always get the billing that the Army generals do. Uh, a lot of the Army generals, too, of course, are political appointees, and they want to make very sure their name stays in front of the public. The Navy remained much more professional. They didn't expand the way that the Army did. So they don't have the axe to grind or the post-war political career to look forward to. So they're not, they're not fighting on the same front, if you will, as the Army is. So, yeah, it's more dig at Civil War Army generals, not the U.S. Army at all. Uh, what about the Marines? You, you are in the Navy and Living – Navy, do it again – Navy and Marine Living History Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the role of, of the Marines in all this? Well, at this point in history, the Marines, and again, we sometimes have to calm modern Marines down when they're in the audience, they're not landed in force in too many places. I mean, First Manassas or First Bull Run is a, an obvious one. Uh, sweeping several islands down south uh, off Georgia and northern Florida, they play a big role. But they're there in small numbers, uh, you know, varying numbers, at every single battle. Uh, on a small gunboat, some of the tin clans in Mississippi, a crew of 50, you might have a corporal and two privates. If the admiral was on board, he would gaggle Marines from all those ships and have an escort of 20 to 30 men with a lieutenant. If you had a major ship like the Hartford when Farragut is there, then you might actually rank a captain, uh, possibly even a major, and have you know, a score or two of Marines. A smart captain, by the way, wouldn't use the Marines just as snipers, which is their primary role in battle, but you might also salt them out among the gun crews or, if you're really smart, give them their own gun so that they can't compete with the sailors. There's a wonderful painting, of course, of Farragut at Mobile Bay, and everyone focuses on, on the action in, in the foreground, uh, the powder monkeys and the, the gun crew and everything, and, and Farragut up in the mast. But if you look closely through the smoke at the rearmost gun crew, mm-hmm. the entire gun crew is wearing kepis, not flat hats. It's a Marine Corps gun crew. And Farragut, or Drayton, this captain there, has been smart enough to say, okay, you want to compete? Let's see who can shoot the best. And there are Marine snipers around, too, but he's also taken the extra Marine and said, let's see how well you can shoot. So they're there, but they're not there in the significant concentrations except for a few times during the Civil War that they will be later on. So uh, when, when the Navy lands uh, people to fight on shore, these are just uh, sailors themselves? More, no, no, more than not at all. Can... If there are Marines on board, again, the captain dictates mm-hmm. who goes on the landing party. And, by the way, a landing party sometimes could even be overstuffed with officers because guys would go along because they're bored. Let's go see what happens. You know, Lieutenant, you're in charge, uh-huh. but these other guys are going along, too. The Navy would land whoever they felt was appropriate. Now, when you land a small howitzer, a mountain howitzer, or a boat howitzer, that doesn't necessarily mean sailors are on the gun and all the Marines are the security team. It could be totally mixed. Or it could be a Marine gun and the sailors are armed like infantry and they're the security team. It didn't matter. It was an ad hoc sort of thing. There's no such thing as, oh, this is the landing party, these 20 guys. It's, it's purpose created in the moment and then is disbanded and filtered back among the crew when the episode's over, the landing is over. So, yeah, the Marines are there, but, again, just not as a large identifiable force as they would be later on. One of the uh, stories, again, that, that's perhaps less well-known, although you suggested it's relatively well-known among uh, naval historians, is the engagement uh, in Japan in 1863. Mm-hmm. Uh, can talk a little bit about that? Oh, the Battle of the Straits of Shimonoseki. I put that in there to illustrate the fact that, again, like I mentioned earlier, the Navy is keeping an eye on the rest of the planet. Now, bear in mind, it hasn't been that many years since uh, Matthew Perry has forced the Japanese to open their ports to the West. And a lot of the Japanese resent this still. The emperor is in a tough spot. He wants to westernize. He sees the benefits of, of 
relations with foreign countries, but he's still basically telling his lords, his daimyos, look, I like the old ways, so, you know, see what you can do. Well, the Straits of Shimonoseki are the exit, if you will, from the Sea of Japan into the Orient, into the Sea of China, the Yellow Sea in China. And they're very small and tortuous, and the local daimyo uh, at Shimonoseki has decided that, well, I'm going to shoot at foreign ships. He has sunk a Dutch ship, put several holes through a French ship, and they made the mistake of shooting at an American ship and killing a couple crewmen. The local commander back at uh, Tokyo, uh, McDougal, Captain McDougal, on the Wyoming, which is a, a sister ship to the Kearsarge, is stationed there to look for the Alabama. And he doesn't know the Alabama has already turned around and headed back for France to be sunk. But he gets word of this, and so he arms up and decides, I'll go teach this guy a lesson. It was also interesting for me because it's so similar to episodes that our armed services running nowadays, where the once friendly local lord, if you will, receives a number of arms from us and then uses them against us. When I read the story originally, uh, briefly, I had just assumed that, okay, the, this Japanese warlord is terribly brave, but he's totally outgunned. Not so much. The takes on are all iron merchantmen that we gave him when he was our friend, and their crews are trained and armed by us. The batteries on the hillsides overlooking the Straits of Shimonoseki are all the latest rifled cannon given him by the British Army when they were friends with him, and his gunners are all trained. What's more, he has aiming stakes in the main channel so that his gunners don't even have to traverse the guns. They basically wait for the bow of the ship to go past the stake, pull the lanyard, and blow it up amidships. McDougal sees his chance when he realizes what they're up to by going in closer inshore so that all their shot goes overhead. And that is risky, but it buys him the time to silence battery after battery. And despite grounding one time, he gets loose and sinks one Japanese ship, leaves another sinking, and sends the third back to shore to burn. Uh, I think Teddy Roosevelt in his history of the U.S. Navy said that had it not occurred in the middle of the Civil War, this guy's name would be as, as well-known and heroic as John Paul Jones. When McDougal sends in his report, he basically gets a telegram back saying, that's a good job. Keep it up. <laughs> and, and you know, even those of us who read a fair amount about the Civil War find this a new story. Uh, I, I may be probably in a minority among our listeners and not having heard of it, but uh, it, it is just one of many stories in the book that, uh, that you don't often hear about. Have you written other books besides this? Actually, I've, I've written, uh, again, you never know where history is going to lead you. I, I am in my next book, Getting Back to the Civil War. But because of a, a submarine that we were studying from this period, which would be the topic of a, a future work, uh, we began looking into the histories of its last officer. And that led back to 1843 and the loss of our first steam frigate, Missouri, which burns to the waterline and sinks in Gibraltar Harbor. The British are unable to get her out, and in eight and a half years, she basically forms a, an iron lace sandbar that bids fair to blockade and ruin the entire harbor. And uh, the British uh, have had a belly full of trying to get it out of there with explosives. They've mangled the wreck, and they turn back to the United States. And Secretary of State Daniel Webster selects a totally unknown, self-taught salvage diver from Lynn, Massachusetts, by the name of John Gowan, to bring her up and says, can you do it in three years? Gowan says, I can do it in six months. Gowan pulls it off in five months, totally twists the British lion's tail, and is a national hero. Since then, that's called Raising Missouri. The, the sequel to that, if you will, recounts that story briefly and goes on to Gowan's largest triumph, which is the largest maritime salvage operation in the history of the planet and the least known. Between 1857 and 1862, 
he raises or salvages 78 warships of the Russian Black Sea Fleet from the harbor of Sevastopol. Wow. And now we're finally getting back. I think this fall, if I can wrap it up, I'll, I'll be putting out a four-volume compendium of Civil War newspapers that I've been transcribing you know, uh, multiple stories from every day for the past three and a half years, and boy, I'm glad to see that's done. But uh, I've learned an awful lot from that project, and, and frankly, I, I hope the book is popular. I mean, the four books, it's, it's going to be a little expensive. It'll probably be about 20 25 bucks a piece. But just to sit down and read through these, and it, it's not an academic book. It's here's, here's the newspaper stories as they are. Here's what the American public saw their world was like. And the frightening thing is, it's like looking in a mirror. Wow. You name a topic now, it's a topic then. The names, the dates, and the speeds of things change a little bit. They're wrestling with the same things we are exactly nowadays. It was absolutely fascinating to do this for the past four years. So that should be out probably next month. Well, that's something definitely to look forward to. We've got a few minutes left, but I, I can't pass over. You mentioned briefly a uh, submarine that you were, were engaged in writing about. Uh, which Civil War submarine was that? <laughs> you want this in four minutes? <laughs> ah, you've got, you've got uh, now is, three and a half. <laughs> okay, this is Alligator. Alligator is built uh, at the beginning of the war. It's the first sub in the Civil War and the first one in the U.S. Navy. And it is, uh, we, we spoke about Virginia before and the, the suicide ramship plan. Of course, Monitor is, is plan A, the Rams are B. This was actually plan C. The Navy agreed to have this boat built in hopes that it could sink Virginia. And when it was not finished until after that, they tried several other missions with it. They had a problem with what's called mission fit. We've been studying this sub for about 14 years. We know about where it went down, but it went down near the edge of the continental shelf. And we're actually hoping that, again, once funding and that sort of thing is available, to be able to go after the prototype, which is built in 1857. And we believe we know just about exactly where it is. And only about 15 feet of mud separates us from it. So did you do diving yourself? I do not. I, I swim like a rock. Uh, I just uh. <laughs> know an awful lot about salvage diving from that period. And uh, Alligator is a fantastic, a fascinating technical story, technological story. And yet it's, it looks like a prize in a crackerjack box compared to some of the other things we have found during the Civil War from the Navy. When we were talking earlier about their technological advances, mm-hmm. there are stories that would... Well, I've given this talk twice on a certain secret weapon and literally left an audience numb. They don't know where to start asking questions. The Navy is decades ahead of everybody else. Wow. Are you I'll just still leave that hanging. I, you're going to leave that hanging. Well, I'll I'm leave that to buy hanging. Your books. Uh, well, I want to ask you, where do you, where do you present? Are, are you still active presenting? Uh, I've yes, presented circuit? as often as I can, mostly in the Northeast. Uh, our, our, I'm down uh, in southeastern Massachusetts. And uh, we'll do talks in the entire Northeast region, you know, up to New York State and all that, and up into Maine. But uh, a couple times I've flown different places to give talks. The Naval Lord of the U.S. down in Jacksonville, Florida. Next week I'll be at the 10th Annual Maritime Heritage Conference presenting on Missouri and also a totally unknown mission undertaken by Monitor that we missed for 150 years. Where is that conference meeting? It's in Norfolk, Norfolk, Virginia. Okay. So if if, listeners are in that area and interested in that, something to consider. Wow. Well, Trek, this is really fascinating. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure both reading uh, your book and the fascinating stories there and hearing from you tonight. And uh, I wish you great success with the next book and uh, the book after that and the various projects. And uh, I, I'm sure our listeners will want to get a copy of this book, A Dog Before a Soldier, Almost Lost Episodes 
in the U.S. Navy's Civil War. Is this something they can find on Amazon? It is on Amazon. It's also on lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. Uh, either place you can, you can pick up a copy for about the same price. Well, that sounds good. It, it has been fun talking with you, and I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you very much, Jerry. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 